Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, uh, Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is John Dupuy, and I wanted to get you excited about this next conversation. This is a two-part, and it's with Dr. Frederick Kuna, and he is a diplomat from the EU who is heading a team that goes into countries and offers help from the European Union. And he's done a number of countries, Belarus, Chechnya, to include Ukraine. In the conversations, I hope you can feel it, but there's actually an evolutionary something expanding in our uh, understanding of perspectives and the reality of war and peace and what's going on right now. So I hope you will participate in this because it's not done until you listen to it. Uh, You guys are essential in making this whole thing happen. So I'll see and hear and feel you there. God bless. Thanks. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh. And our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today, we have a guest, Dr. Frederick Kuna, who is originally from Belgium, is a PhD in political science, and as a world authority on Russia and Eastern Europe, he's written a number of books, including The Caucasus, which is part of the Routledge series on contemporary Russia and Eastern Europe. And he's also written a book on the Euro-Atlantic Discourse in Georgia. He's multilingual, speaks Russian, English, as well as other languages. And he's currently working as head of cooperation for the European Union delegation in Kiev. So he has a first-hand view on much of the crisis that's going on in Ukraine at the moment. It struck me as a man who's able to hold many perspectives about this tragic situation partly on the basis of his wide knowledge and historical expertise. He really is uh, very skilled in my experience in being able to look at this issue and other issues from multiple perspectives. And particularly with regard to Ukraine, I know for myself and for so many others, it's such a tragic situation that it's very easy to be emotionally overwhelmed and fall into black and white thinking. Dr. Kuhn has been, uh, Kuna, sorry, has been very skilled in holding multiple views simultaneously in a way which is a challenge for all of us, but is also what most people in our audience, in our community, are trying to learn how to do. So welcome, Frederick. Thank you very much for having me. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure. We had a personal dialogue by, via an introduction from a friend a few weeks ago, and John and I were so struck by your capacity for looking at this tragic situation in many perspectives that we really wanted to have a dialogue with you, and so we're very grateful for the opportunity to do so. Yeah, we, we were on a panel recently in Budapest speaking about the Ukraine, so this is actually my third chance to speak to you, and I'm just the world is changing so quickly. I'm just wondering, you know, one of the things I want to ask about how you're, how you see it now, as opposed to the first conversation and, and what's going on. So it's good to be back with you, Frederick. Yeah. And perhaps just to acknowledge that you are based in Kiev and are spending, as I understand it, three weeks in Kiev and one week back with your family. So maybe your first question is a very personal one. How is it living in for you living in Kiev at this time and being exposed firsthand to this challenging, tragic situation? Well, life in Ukraine is very difficult right now. And um, it actually doesn't really matter where you are in the country because there's no safe place. And I think that's the worst of all. It's the whole thing that it's very unpredictable. Because, I mean, you have these uh, sirens, I mean, the alarm that goes off because there's a missile or an incoming plane that might uh, strike bombs or something like that. And you don't know where it's going to hit. I mean, it could be in Kiev, it could be 500 kilometers away. Um, and, and you never know what's happening. And for example, what happened just um, like yesterday in, in Kremenchuk, where just a whole mall was, was blown to pieces, basically. I mean, people didn't expect this to happen there, but it, it can really be anywhere. And and this is a very thing. I mean, this is a very difficult to, thing to be with because just at any point of the day, during the day or at night, you just hear these air raid alarms, and you just wake up from them, and you don't know what you have to do because the likelihood that you're going to be affected by it is, is minimal, but it can always happen to you, and it's something that. From one side, you get, I mean, you get used to it and you never get used to it, basically. I mean, that, that's one thing. The second thing is that there is major problems with the delivery of fuel. So people can only buy 15 up to 20 liters of, of gasoline or diesel. I mean, in, in, in your terms, I think that's about three, four gallons of gasoline that you can buy at any time. And then people basically have to wait for sometimes like one or two hours at petrol stations. I mean, it's getting a little bit better, but still, it has a huge impact on, on people's life. Um, I mean, shops, restaurants are open, but you feel in the air something's different because just in terms of like traffic in, in the city, it's like a fifth of it of what it used to be. Yeah, let, let me add something to this story. I just got off the phone or a Zoom call with a number of um, my Ukrainian colleagues and friends, and they were talking about the mall bombing. And apparently... These were fired from Belarus, 15 miles from the border, from, from warplanes, from jet fighters, Russian fighters, and they were able to uh, intercept the dialogue with the pilots. From that conversation, it seems like they were deliberately targeting that mall. That wasn't a bomb gone astray. That was a target they, they meant to hit. So that's, it just adds, I would add, gravity to the conversation, I would think. Yes, it sounds like. What I take from what you're saying, Frederick, is it's just a constant state of anxiety and uncertainty and ongoing fear. And I would imagine not a lot of sleep. Well, sleep, I'm, I'm pretty fine with that. I, I'm, I got used to that. And it's not the first time that I'm in a conflict zone. 
But I agree that it's very much an attempt also by the Russians, I believe, to keep anxiety and fear because fear is a very good way of controlling people. And that's something we see everywhere in the world, right? If you want to control your, your people, you just make sure that there is a certain level of anxiety and then you can push forward certain things that you normally cannot do. And the Russians have proven in the past that they're very good at using that as a, as a tool, very successfully, unfortunately. And they're doing it again now. Yes, that seems to be part of the history, looking at what has happened in Syria. Certainly a devastating use of force in directed at civilians specifically with this kind of horror and, and terror. As you look at this, maybe just you could say a little bit about how you're seeing attitudes evolve in people under these circumstances, under that kind of fear. It's very hard not to go into survival mode and black and white thinking and us versus them, which, of course, are very, very, very natural human responses. But I wonder if you could give us just a firsthand taste of what you're experiencing. Yeah, I think that we're very much in a survival mode on all sides of this war. The question is really to what extent does it really lead to taking the best decisions, right? Because if you're in a survival mode, you've got certain parts of the brain that get switched on and other parts that are, are not switched on. And I do see that this kind of black and white thinking or like this dichotomy is, is maybe getting stronger and, and stronger by the day. It's really two very clear camps that are being formed. And there is also pressure, I would say, on, on other countries almost to join one of these camps, right? Because Russia is basically trying to, to force certain countries to be on their side. And they're using commodities, I mean, grain, uh, fuel, and so on. They're using that as a way to, to try to lure certain countries to support them. And then from the other side, there is also the West that's basically trying to seek allies to, to have more sanctions on, on Russia. And of course, we're getting in a very polarized global setting, I would say. And the question is really how, I mean, where is this going to bring us to? And this brings me to my own thinking and my own questioning, because, um, of course, apart from being a, an official for the European Union, I'm also, a, let's say, a, 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 some kind of philosopher and a free thinker. And I'm also thinking for myself, like, where are we heading? I mean, if in a normal situation there's black and white thinking and we are at the sidelines, we're going to say that, look, but you should not think in black and white terms because you're not going to get anywhere at the end of the day. But then once we are in a conflict, we do fall into that ourselves. And I, I see that a lot of what is happening is quite reactive. And, and sometimes, I, I, sometimes we may do the right things for the wrong reasons. And sometimes that's not helpful either. I mean, this brings us, for example, to the question of what about the, the, the military support? I mean, to what extent should military support be given? And it's a question that we see really in, in the West, um, in, in Europe, in, in the US, how much support should be given? Where is the boundary line of too much? What could be seen as already offensive equipment and so on? And it is something that's really, I mean, it's not keeping me awake uh, physically, um, but let's say uh, somehow uh, it's not lit in literal sense, but it is something that, that I think about very much. Like, to what extent is this black and white thinking 
going to lead to the best solution for humanity. Because we see lots of consequences of this black and white thinking, right? Coal is going to be used much more again. I mean, coal, we were, I mean, we were closing our coal mines um, because they were just too bad for the environment. And now we're basically going to start using coal again in order to generate electricity. So there's so many things that are consequences of the way we are dealing with this war that are making the global situation maybe even worse in areas that we didn't think about before. Yes, and what seems distinctive about this conflict as opposed to numerous other tragic conflicts going on around the world is that this one has global implications and almost everyone on the planet will be touched by it in some way, whether it's by starvation in Africa because of the impeded grain flow or whether it's the massive increase in defense spending on countries like Germany, for example, or whether it's simply the the diversion of resources from more ecological uses to emergency use of, as you said, for coal. Yeah. And if we're just looking at inflation, for example, inflation figures are going up month after month. And yes, part of it was caused still some kind of delayed effect of COVID pandemic. But most of the inflation we're seeing now is because of the war. And there is no end in sight. I mean, for example, tomorrow the Eurozone is going to publish their inflation figures. It seems that it's going to go up. Also in other places, it's going up. And there again, the consequence is mostly on, on the common people, right? They are the ones who, who are suffering most from it. And the question is really, what is going to happen when these inflation figures just get higher and higher? The Eurozone is at, what was it? I mean, eight and a half percent, I think last month. This is going to go higher and higher. What are we going to do when poverty levels in Europe also increase? I mean, that's something we're going to see definitely over, over winter time, right? Because Germany has already said that they will probably not have enough gas for, for the next winter. Also, the UK has said that they may not have enough gas, so they're, they're, they may stop their exports to other countries. So it is really going to affect so many people. Again, there's almost no one on the planet who won't be touched by this in some way. As you step back, you're one of the people who has really stood out as someone who's able to take a larger perspective here and hold different perspectives. What do you think that is not being seen? I think many things are not seen. I think that we are not seeing the complexity of the Ukrainian side and we're not seeing the complexity of the Russian side. Because right now it's as if it's, I mean, it's presented as a fight of David versus Goliath, right? It's very much perceived as democratic Ukraine that is fighting against uh, evil Russia. I mean, it's some kind of simplistic image that is being used. But, but Frederick, is it that generally true? Generally it is true, but it's a yeah. simplification, right? And I believe that in order to find a solution to any problem, you cannot reduce the problem to a very, you cannot reduce the problem in very simple terms. I, I do believe that in order to explain it to population um, that may be interested in trying to understand something but doesn't have the, the, the ability to really have in-depth knowledge, I mean, yes, it may make sense for sure to simplify somehow the language by which you're explaining it. 
But the reality is a little bit more complex, I believe. I mean, for example, Ukraine is not, I mean, Ukraine strives to become a democracy. It's not a, a brilliant example of, of democracy, but there's definitely some of the fundamentals that are definitely there, right? I mean, they have a parliament, they have very free elections, you can say, but there's also some of the other sides that maybe are, are lacking if we're looking in terms of the rule of law, fight against corruption, uh, media that's owned by, by oligarchs and so on. So you, you cannot see it as, you cannot simplify it as if it is a fully fledged democracy that is fighting a country that is purely barbarian, because also on the Russian side, yes, I mean, what Russia is doing now on the military front is purely barbarian. Uh, I doubt there is anybody who, who would really challenge that. Uh, I mean, if you see what is happening, right? Of course, people in Russia who, who are basically dependent on a very, very biased view of the media, they, they just don't really know what is happening. And sometimes they actually don't even want to know what is happening, right? But in order to, to also understand the Russian perspective, I think in, in every conflict, it's very important to bring up some kind of empathy, no matter how hard it may be. But I believe without bringing up any empathy and without trying to understand the Russian complexity, I think it's very difficult to really come to a, a, a true peaceful solution. Because yes, maybe militarily by overpowering Russia, maybe it's possible to end the war, but it doesn't mean that we're going to have a peaceful situation because Russia is still going to be there. Russia is very good at um, the concept of managed instability, keeping frozen conflicts and keeping the fear high enough so that basically spoiling the opportunities for others. But I believe in order to really get to a lasting and sustainable solution, we also need to look at the Russian perspective. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with them, right? But we just have to try to understand it. I mean, it's like um, if you have a, a problem in a relationship, the first thing that people will have to do is try to bring up some empathy and, and try to see each other's perspective. And they may not like it and they may not agree with it, but at least I think it's something that needs to be done. And I feel this is a little bit missing. And, and this is why I feel that, or why I fear even that no matter how the military situation may evolve, that it's not necessarily going to be good for the world. Because if we end up in a completely polarized world politics, it's not necessarily good, right? I mean, as we were saying already, people are going to be suffering because of the food insecurity. That's not going to be solved just by having a military victory. Well, there's a lot of work to be done after a military victory. And I, I think the Russian perspective, I actually watch a, a YouTube channel called 1420, which I recommend to everyone. A brave young man is on the streets. I believe he's in Moscow. He's just asking people off the streets, old, young, rich, this, that, and the other, gay, straight, you know, just all kinds of people, what they think about the world. And it's been quite a series. And so you get a, a really good overall taste of what the common people in Russia feel. And there are some that are a few that are true believers, you know, that uh, they need to denazify Ukraine and this is totally justified and blah, blah, that whole, the whole Putin line. And there's others who obviously are against it, who have friends and family in Ukraine who have lost friends in the war, Russian soldiers. And it's, it's definitely not a unified 
field as far as what the Russians feel. And I think it's very clear that Vladimir Putin has mourned the loss of the Soviet empire at its greatest extent and wants it back. The problem is that many of these countries, most of them, it seems, don't want to be back under the Russian yoke. And therein lies the rub. Maybe you could comment on that. Or you too, Roger, however, how do you want to work this? Frederick, please. You are fluent in Russian. You have Russian friends. I think you've spent time there. And I'm sure you have insight into into a lot that's going on from their perspective. It would be wonderful to hear that. It's very difficult to really understand how Russian society thinks, because also there it's pretty polarized and most people are not going to tell honestly what they think. I mean, if you would do a public opinion poll in Russia, nobody's going to really say what they think, because why would they? I mean, like they're always going to have these thoughts in the back of their heads, like, why is this person asking me? Like, what do I have to gain from telling my honest opinion? But I think there is, there is just like any society, I mean, it's, look, in, in Ukraine, there's also many people who just say that, look, I already don't care what's going to happen. I just want to have my, easy, my, my, my normal life. I just want to be able to grow my potatoes and my onions again. And it doesn't matter anymore for me. I just want it to be peace. I mean, there, it's, it's a very, I mean, there's different views there. It's not that everybody is saying that we should continue fighting till the end. There's different views in, in Ukraine. The same happens in Russia, where you have, I mean, there is a huge part of the Russian population that is very much against what is happening. And I have quite a few friends that have left Russia, and they're just in in Europe, in the US, and so on. There's others who just don't have the opportunities to leave. And and then there's also many people who, who don't want to know what is happening. I mean, if we're looking at what happened in the Second World War, the whole thing about uh, if you have Nisnikvust, I mean, we, we didn't know about it, right? Something similar is happening also in Russia where people don't want to know about it because once you know something, you have a moral duty to do something against it. And it's very easy for us to blame Russians for having this attitude, but how would we be ourselves? I don't know. I mean, I'm not in that that situation. I'm not going to say that I'm such a brave guy and that I would stand up, but Maybe I would also say that, look, I I just don't want to know about it. Maybe I would also say that, oh, look, politics is something for the political elites. I shouldn't get into it. I'm a teacher. I do my stuff and let the authorities do what they have to do. I'm not going to understand it in any case. Frederick, a a lot of the people that I've been listening to express exactly what you're expressing. They just don't want to talk about it. You know, it's like it's out of my control. That's for the leaders. That's for politicians. So that's a very... I wouldn't say the majority of people, but it's a very, a very present opinion and reaction to the war among the Russians that I've been following in this uh, particular uh, channel on YouTube. Very interesting. I, I think one challenge that we see is that with this polarization, Russians are now seen as some kind of the bad guys, right? No matter where they are. There's many Russians who are in Europe, in the US, they're completely against the war, but they are seen as the bad ones. In, in, in some countries, they may have problems with being able to stay. They may have problems with their property or, or things like that. And um, even if they are not an oligarch, even if they are not linked to, to the regime of Putin. 
And again, that's not helpful, right? If also innocent people are somehow becoming the target of what, what is happening. And, and, this, and, and this is why I believe that in order to, I, I think it's very important for every single one of us to become more conscious in our reaction to the war. Because it's very easy to get emotionally caught up. I've also had my moments. I mean, I, was, I also had to leave um, because of the war. Um, I also have many friends in Ukraine. I'm also working there. I have staff that's affected, uh, family, I mean, husbands of, of some of the people in, in my team, they are, they are uh, fighting. Also one of the team who is actually in active duty now. So I, it's also very easy for me to get emotionally involved with it. But I always try to bring myself back into a state of maybe a little bit more consciousness where... I do not want to be reactive. And I think that's very important. I mean, as a person, Frederick Kuni is not going to solve the war. As a person, Frederick Kuni is not going to change the way that people approach or, or deal with drugs. But as a person on my own level, I can just do what I feel that I have to do. I've experienced that traveling abroad for most of my life, that sometimes people will attack me as an American because things that America is doing at the time and things that I was personally totally against and had no power to change. So that's just, yeah, obviously we have to treat everyone with compassion and understanding and not project a Vladimir Putin's mentality on every Russian in the world. That's ridiculous. So anyway, yeah, I, I, but I know what you're saying and, and I hope, hope that we wouldn't do that. And I have, a, I have a Russian who's like two blocks from me here who's been a good friend over the years. And I haven't talked to him. I just got back into town after a year since this has happened. But I'd like to speak to him, too, and see where he's at. So clearly one thing is to take a more nuanced perspective on both people and the issues and to whatever extent we can, which is not a small challenge to step out of the more simplistic black and white thinking of and and the labeling of all good, all bad, all people from this area, bad, all people from that area, good, etc. And yet it's such a challenge. Frederick, John, you've both spoken about the challenge of doing this and how you've been caught up in the at times in the black and white thinking. And I certainly have. I went into a, a month's meditation retreat just a week after the uh, initial invasion. It took me a week of to let go my fury at Putin and to, you know, come back to some equanimity. So I, I was amazed at how deeply impacted I was and how I just fell into a very automatic rage instead of the more equanimous, big picture, more nuanced thinking that I'd like to hold. So I, I realized this is very difficult. What if both of you found as ways of responding more calmly, equanimously, compassionately? Well, I think that I'd say I have a big advantage that I have lots of friends in Russia and I have lots of friends in Ukraine. I am basically forced to show understanding to my friends. They're my friends. I cannot just consider all of them bad. That would not speak well about me, basically. Um, the other thing that I do is I'm really communicating a lot with people. I'm speaking a lot with Ukrainian friends and colleagues, but also lots with Russian friends. 
mean, there is this idea that Russia is completely cut off from social media and so on. Well, it's not. I mean, people are just continuing to use Instagram, Facebook, and so on, and so on in, in Russia, just like before the, the war. Um, and just by communicating with them, I'm better able to understand their personal positions and have more compassion for them as a person as a, and also as a nation, basically, because they're part of a bigger nation. And the other thing that I try to do is I also try to bring in some kind of spiritual perspective to it, which is not easy. At the end of the day, I do believe that we're all a soul or whatever you want to call it, depending on your own spiritual beliefs and so on. But if each of us is a soul, then even um, Vladimir Putin has a soul. And he's also on this planet, in this material world for a certain reason. And also he deserves certain compassion, no matter how, how bad the atrocities are that the state is committing. Even that deserves a certain level of compassion, I believe, because there's a reason why he's doing that. We may not like it and we may think it is completely wrong. But the reason it's happening for a certain reason, and it is, and I try to just bring a certain, not understanding, but compassion also to the other side. Um, and it's something that's not, not easy, but I'm, I'm fortunate to, to have a wife who's also on the same page with me. And, and I would say we are supporting each other in terms of, of trying to see uh, the best in people. Yeah, just just on the other side. Of that. Yeah, I have I have Russian friends, and I was did a workshop in Russia, 2014. It was right before Crimea invasion, annexation, however you want to phrase that. And I deeply love these people after spending a week with them, and just a week. The ones that were close to me, and they 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 protected me. They walked me around Moscow. They wouldn't let Pan and I go out by ourselves. They wanted to make sure that we were safe, and they were very against what was going on with Putin at that time, back then. And I just said, okay, we're here in this apartment. You know, let's say it one, two, three, Putin sucks, but let's not do it in restaurants and stuff like that because I don't think it's safe. And I have not been in communication with some of these people because I don't want to have emails coming from the United States or where we talk about anti-Putin and anti-the-war. That might, might put my friends at risk. I don't know, but it might. So I haven't done that. And of course, I've, I've have, have a lot, a lot of Ukrainian friends now and colleagues. And I just see the, the, their overwhelming grief and, and outrage and hurt. And uh, they've all lost friends. And Ukraine may not be a perfect democracy. It's a brand new baby democracy. You know, it just started. And don't, but doesn't have a right to to make mistakes and fall on its face and get up again and, and correct its way. And the question, did Ukraine do anything at all to justify this invasion? You know, were they provocative in any way? And, and what I do spiritually, I, I, you know, I don't know if I can recommend this to everyone, but I, I take on the pain and the grief that I, I feel, and I've been cursed or blessed with a, with, a, with a very sensitive self that feels these things. And I've, I've been very connected to this particular conflict for God knows he has his reasons. But I hold that grief, that pain and that anger, whatever those powerful, uncomfortable feelings are in my meditation and just sit with them and say, welcome, teacher. And hopefully out of that, 
things begin to shift to a deeper level where I can have a true wisdom and true compassion and also a sense of what is my little part that I should do in the midst of all this, given all that we know and given all the perspectives and given my experience and given everything I've learned in my life from my country's history, from world history, what should I do now? That's that's what I do. And of course, this conversation is a part of that. Not not everything by a long shot, but a part of that. Beautiful. And there's, there's so much in what you both just said in response to the question of how can we come to a place of greater, more expansive, aware place around this? And, and so I just want to summarize some of it. Frederick, you're pointing to the, the importance of direct communication. You made me aware. Well, I have you know a number of Russian friends, not a large number, but I have not reached out and made contact with them in the same way I have with my Ukrainian friends. So it would be very valuable for me to start sending some, some emails. You mentioned, John, the importance of just sitting with the pain and letting it work on you and opening to it as a teacher, which I've also tried to do and you know, not be quite as reactive as I tend to be. And then, Frederick, you mentioned something incredibly important and very challenging. That is the, the holding of compassion for everyone, including Putin, who is acting. You know, we can't understand exactly what's going on, but we can acknowledge that it's creating enormous amount of suffering. And can we hold everyone in compassion? That, that is a very profound and demanding practice, and I, I bow that you are, you are both doing that. Maybe one more thing that I wanted to add is that my wife and I have a practice of gratefulness. Every evening before we go to bed, we're just taking some time to, to thank our creator, basically, for the day that we've had and all the experiences we go through. And it, it may sound weird, but we're actually also very thankful and grateful for going through this experience. And I think this is also giving me some kind of inner strength. No matter how horrible this war in Ukraine is, no matter how big the suffering is, I still want to be grateful to the universe and our creator for giving me the opportunity of going through this whole experience because I'm learning a lot from it. And this is giving me the inner strength to bring up more compassion for people that I may not understand. Maybe with my understanding of, of the history of Russia and so on, maybe I understand a little bit more than, than most other people of what may be in the, the head of, of Putin, but that doesn't mean that I fully understand him. But at least with this, let's say, support that I feel, this inner support that I have, it, it, it really helps me. Uh, and, and just to acknowledge the beauty and power of the fact you are doing that gratitude practice and how, how important it, it can be. And it's so easy to fall into kind of survivor guilt around our own good fortune. And yet, and yet guilt is a very destructive emotion. And like you, gratitude has been a very important practice. My late wife, Frances Vaughan, died very suddenly five years ago. And on the last day of her life, she was asked by a friend, what's your spiritual practice? And she said, I'm cultivating gratitude. And because it was one of the last things she said, it really went in. And it only took a few days of waking up after she was gone and 
feeling grief arise and really realizing I could do, go down the rabbit hole of, oh, poor me, I'm alone, I'm, I'm suffering, this is terrible. Or I could acknowledge the grief and say, and I have a roof over my head, I have friends, I have an income, I'm safe, I'm supported. And it was life-changing. It didn't eradicate the grief, but it stopped the rabbit hole of woe is me and it all is terrible. I've come to feel that gratitude is a very much underestimated practice and that often in response to our good fortune and privilege, there's a tendency to feel guilt and just an idea that we should feel bad for it. But as far as I can see, the most skillful attitudes are threefold. One is humility for our, acknowledging that we're not entirely responsible for our good fortune. We've been graced in some way. Another is simply offering, what can I do? And how, how, can, I, how can I share this? And compassion, as you said, for those who have less. And both of you have spoken to the importance of finding something we can do in this, this situation, of course, in all situations of suffering, being active rather than just passive. So I'd welcome anything further you'd both like to say. It's well said, Frederick, yeah, and uh, that's important. I think sometimes gratitude in the face of catastrophe is something we work towards. You know, it's very hard to feel it immediately, but it is something that, yeah, thank you, God, for this and, and help me to understand and help me to, to process whatever this is so that I can be who I need to be. Yeah, it, it takes it takes some work, but generally speaking, I think it's one of the profoundest spiritual practices that we can we can engage in, really. Shift signs big time. Yeah, and you're, I would assume, a minority in your in your work and world, Frederick, who really does have a very deep, committed spiritual practice and is bringing this to your work. How does that change the way you're seeing and feeling and responding? Oh, I mean, if we're talking in, let's say, spiral dynamic terms, right, and we would say that everybody who's working for a bureaucracy is very, very blue. They may project a green image, but in the core of who they are, they're very, very blue. Um, and it's a challenge that I have because I'm coming up very often with critical thinking. And it's not always appreciated, uh, of course, as, as you can imagine. I mean, a bureaucracy is based on um, rules and principles, procedures that have always worked, so you don't challenge them. And I do challenge that. And I must admit that I did have some difficult moments in the past when basically I was thinking that I can no longer function in the system. But as I started to look at myself, I saw that the problem was not the system, the problem was me. There is nothing wrong with the bureaucracy. There is nothing wrong with blue, right? I mean, many people are, are saying that blue is bad or something like that, but I, I think blue gets bad if you get reactive to it. And, and Frederick, can we just say for pe uh, just explain for a moment uh, for people who may not be familiar with spiral dynamics what blue is? Yeah, so so blue is basically a stage in let's say development of, of societies, but also in people where basically rules, order, discipline, and so on are are very important. 
Um, and, and of course, a bureaucracy is completely founded on, on these principles. And, and people who go to, let's say, more developed stages in, in this development process, they may have challenges with this because they feel that it's somehow like straight-jacketing them. Now, in, in my personal experience, as, as I did have problems with this straight-jacketing of, of the bureaucracy, I actually started looking at myself that, I mean, if, if I find it difficult or challenging to, to work in such a setting, maybe I should just change my attitude to it. And maybe I should try to bring in some, some other values as well. And so, for example, what I have been doing at work is uh, I've been teaching the, the Enneagram, the, the psychology of the Enneatypes, to about 20 of my colleagues. Um, and, and it was a very interesting experience, of course, because suddenly their boss uh, and colleague is suddenly starting to teach them something very weird about psychology. <laughs> but it, has really, it has really changed something in the dynamics of many people. Um, many people have really opened their eyes. And I think a lot of this black and white thinking, a lot of this the judgmental approach that many people may have that was softened very much. People really started to look at others in a, in a different and more compassionate way, actually, with more understanding. Well, maybe not understanding, but at least some openness that we may not understand. Because what normally happens is that if we don't understand somebody, we're going to say that person is an idiot. But actually, it says more about us than about the person we're talking about, Right. Um, and, and I have seen that this has, this has really brought some good fruits in, 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 on, a, on a very small scale. And again, I'm not going to change the whole bureaucracy, right? I mean, the, the European Commission has a, something like 30,000 staff. I'm not going to teach all of them, at least 20. It, it's a start. Um, but I have understood that if, I mean, if the, 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 the environment in which you work is, is very rigid, then at least try to work with this rigidity in a certain way that you're not going to hurt yourself. I also have my own issues and, and I've been trying to, I've, I've been trying to use the challenges that I have with work in order to work on myself. Frederick, that, that's amazing. And what a, what a beautiful story. And you say it is, it is having effect, the people that you're working with. So instead of cursing the system, you've taken a piece of it that you can actually make a difference and done something. I think that that is so wise. And often we're so overwhelmed with the issues of the world, our country, however that works, our families, that we don't, we don't do anything. We just succumb to, to anger, our cynicism, our despair, our depression, however that works out, but just saying, okay, I can't change the world, but maybe I can have some influence in this area that I'm in is, and like I said, I'm sure that's changing you because every time I've taught, I'm learning at least as much as what I'm sharing with others, if not more. So how's that been for you to share and be a teacher in that experience? Well, it's very difficult, right? Because I mean, the psychology of the types has a deep spiritual root and to talk about spirituality in a bureaucracy is I mean, it's not, it's not an easy thing, as you can imagine, right? <laughs> but, but I would say, I mean, the, the good thing is that as half of the colleagues who are taking my course on the Enneagram, they're Ukrainians. And actually, Ukrainians are much more open to talking about spirituality, even at work, than Europeans would be. And actually, very interestingly, I would say after a few lessons 
also the European staff, I mean, the, the, or the EU staff, basically, also they were more open to this kind of principles. It, it was a very difficult thing for me because I tried to adhere to the, to the code of the bureaucracy, right? And I had to learn how to step a little bit outside of that. And I think this is my personal growth that I need to learn to speak up for myself. And even if it does not fully comply with what is the commonly accepted ideology or the code or the, the speech that you normally use, um, but doing that in a way that's not offensive, of course. And I think that, so I think actually trying to teach the Enneagram to, to colleagues has been as much learning experience for me as it was to the colleagues. And actually, I, I came up with this idea that maybe one day I should just be given some kind of training position in the institution and just have like one week workshops and have like 30, 30 colleagues at a time. I mean, in like, let's say 40 work weeks, I could teach about 1,200 people the Enneagram, right? And I think that maybe that would be a very good way to change the bureaucracy from the inside. I mean, not that the bureaucracy is bad, but try to bring this bureaucracy and, and bring the level of consciousness to a higher level, because I think that is very much needed. If we want to be able to have bureaucracies create a better world, it's not only going to be by having better laws or something like that, because again, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. The right reasons would be if it comes from a right level of consciousness. And that is what I would like to do. Listen next week to the second part of this conversation. If you listen to the first part, I'm sure you want to listen to the second part because there's stuff going on. There's truth being realized. And I think there's just a transformation of the human spirit that's happening in this time and in this conversation. And you guys are an essential part and you're listening and participating. So we'll be with you there. Thanks. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.